Welcome to Family Chemotherapy, a corner for parents and caretakers fighting and surviving pediatric cancer. I'm your host, Adriana Lewin. Hi, welcome to Family Chemotherapy. My name is Adriana, I'm the host, and today I have Laura. How do you say your last name, Laura? It's very Polish and gets mispronounced all the time, so it's pronounced Sobiak. Sobiak. I was going to say Sobiak. I was very close. <laughs> Either way is fine. So bitch is not okay. <laughs> no, no. no. <laughs> Good thing yeah. I didn't do that. <laughs> So, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, For those of you who aren't aware, Laura is actually the author of Clouds, right? Mm -hmm. But can you tell us what the previous version of your book? Yeah, the previous one was called Fly a Little Higher. So I wrote that right after Zach passed away in 2013. Excuse me. And then um, now we have a movie tie-in edition called Clouds, a Memoir. And it's been updated with a new epilogue. There's a note um, from Justin Baldoni, the director of the movie. Um, All stories about how Zach has shown up in our lives since he's passed away and how we very much, he's just very much present in our life um, still. And then um, just some updated pictures too that have been kind of fun for, you know, us with the cast and just, just some cool stuff like that. So yeah, Clouds in Memoir. So I'm gonna go back. Let's talk a little bit about your history and a little bit about Zach's history. Um, How long has it been since he was originally diagnosed? Oh, okay. So he was diagnosed. So it was right about this time of year. Um, He actually, so he went for a run with his sister and came back and it was late August of 2009. So he was 14 years old. He had just finished up his eighth grade year at St. Clair Catholic in Stillwater. He was headed into the public school system, mm-hmm. um, wanted to get in shape for playing basketball. He wanted to try out for the team. And he went for a run and he came back and he said his hip really hurt. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, of course it does because you've been laying around all summer and doing nothing. So, mm-hmm. you know, tell me if it still hurts in a, a week or so. And, and it did. It continued to hurt and get worse. So we took him into the doctor did an x-ray, didn't have a radiologist look at it, but the doctor and I both looked at it. And not that I have a trained eye, but I didn't see anything obvious either. Mm-hmm. He went on to do two months, two and a half months of physical therapy. And um, we finally got a diagnosis in November of 2009. So it's been 11 years since he was diagnosed. Wow. And how long, um, I know for osteosarcoma, what I've understood is um, you guys have a lot of like long hospital admissions, even though the chemo isn't like as intense, I say intense because they're all intense, right? But like mm-hmm. when, when you hear leukemia, you hear them being there for months. And then, you know, my child, sarcoma, he literally goes to the hospital for one day rounds of chemo every three weeks. And most of the chemo is in the clinic and outpatient, you know, outpatient. Mm -hmm. So um, what was that like for you guys with osteosarcoma and how long did you guys have to go through that? Yeah, that was, that was a bit of a shock, you know, because at this point we didn't, we just didn't have any experience with cancer 
I mean, it really was the one thing that I remember as a mother thinking, well, at least I don't have to worry about that because we don't have cancer in our family. So the only exposure to like chemotherapy regimens that I had was just hearing about people in my community who had breast cancer or, you know, older people who were going through treatments. And to me, it sounded like one day a week in the hospital for an infusion, you were sick for a little bit, and then you, you know, got better. So when we found out that he was actually, Zach was actually going to have to be admitted to the hospital for three to five days for 18 rounds of chemo, that was intense. You know, all that, like, are you serious? He's going to have to be in the hospital? Well, how am I going to do school? What does that look like? You know, all those questions, those real practical things came up aside from what is this going to do to his body? And, you know, what happens after all those questions came later? Um, yeah, it was intense. I just remember everything. <laughs> like I remember that moment so well in the clinic when, when the, um, chemonk, remember hearing that term and yeah. not having any yeah. idea what they were talking about, hematologists, <laughs> oncologists, like, wait a minute, you're not a male and you're not a monk. So I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> when she handed us the, um, the calendar with all these weeks crossed out and I'm like what and I remember looking up on the back of the door of the clinic the room was a mirror and like watching my own face as all this is playing out in my head it was like slow motion and I'm like wait a minute <laughs> how is he gonna be schooled and I asked I asked her like okay what about school I mean, she's telling me all this medical stuff and I just stopped and I'm like what about school and she goes, oh, you'll have to homeschool. And I remember hearing it like homeschool. I mean, that's kind of ninth <laughs> grade. And, you know, like all I could think of was math. And then he's going to be like homeless because he's not going to know. How to do math. You know, that's so this crazy, all this stuff. I'm assuming you're your not head. that great at math. <laughs> I'm not. He was probably going to be fine. But I was like, I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> you know, so all these these crazy the, these worlds like colliding, right? Like where we have all these mom duties that we have to think of, mm -hmm. and then how do you get this child through chemotherapy? Um, I also remember if we back up a little bit, I remember the day we went in for the MRI and we found out it was a tumor. So that's how our real journey, you know, beyond the initial X-ray. Then okay, the therapist is saying he's getting worse not better. He needs an MRI. So we went in for that MRI before he was even diagnosed. And we found out he had a plum sized tumor in his hip. And not knowing what it was at that point, I remember seeing Zach, he was in the waiting room, he was absolutely miserable. He looked like a cat who'd fallen into a tub of water. You know, he was just sad, because it was a painful experience for him. Um, and I just remember as a mother looking at him, so he's 14 years old, I have information that's going to change his life, but I don't have any answers. What do I do? And just, you know, in, in the span of walking across that room to him, all these things playing out in my head of, do I protect him by not telling him, you know, like, is that an option here? what do I do? And by the time I sat down, I knew I need to be honest with him from this point onward. He needs to know. Um, cause he was older, you know, he's, he's 14. He's going to know 
something's yeah. going on. Um, and I need to be honest about what we know and what we don't know, you know? And so I, I told them, you know, it's a tumor. We don't know what it is. And it was heartbreaking. I just remember so clearly. And I do, I write about it in the book about how he just kind of closed his eyes and turned away from me. And it was so reminiscent of a moment when he was like two or three years old and he needed stitches and they strapped him down. And he, that moment of recognition from a child who realizes the parent isn't going to be able to save them. Oh, no. You know, just that gut-wrenching experience and, and watching that play out in him, knowing like he was recognizing he needed to deal with this internally. And as a parent, you can't, you can do what you can, but it's all on the outside. You know, you can't go in and just fix it for him. And mm-hmm. So it's, you know, there's all of that happening too. You can't protect your child from what's happening in their own bodies. So yeah, that wrenching. I, I can definitely relate to that. And, you know, as a therapist, um, I have worked with children and I loved working with teens. That was like my, my favorite population are teen and young adults and, and adults as well. Um, the children is a little harder because you really got to play. And I feel like, you know, that can be a little more challenging sometimes. And so I, I recognize that I had to put my child into play therapy he's four years old after a while, like you could see behavioral changes. And I'm like, I know he's struggling to process this. This is a lot for him. He doesn't use words and his world has been completely turned upside down. And so there was a moment where one of, um, we had a parent consult with the therapist and she's telling me about what they call themes in this, you know, in play therapy. It's like they act out a lot of aggression because they're like really frustrated or angry And she said in one of these sessions, he was building this basically like a fort out of all these little blocks. And he would come in with something that looked a lot like a needle, like something really pointy and sharp and come in and attack the fort. And it would knock over many times until he built it to where he felt like it was strong enough and he would pretend that it wasn't um, able to knock it down. And that was like... um, it was a reflection of his, the way he was processing like this needle. I can't protect what's on the inside. Oh, cause on the inside he had his little like puppy or something. And so she's like, he can't protect what was on the inside from the external needle. And eventually he grew or built this little fort that was strong enough to protect him. And I started bawling because that it was like, as a mother, you're like, I know what he's doing. I know he's building something that resembles what he's going through. And I'm supposed to be that fort that he's building up. I'm supposed to be the one to protect him from anything. And I can't, like, I'm literally putting him through hell to give him a chance at living, which is terrible, you know? And as a parent, like, I can understand what you're saying. Like, you you want and you know, and that's like your role as a mother is to protect your child. And that, and in that moment, there's nothing that you can do to protect them. No, there isn't. And like you said, you're, you're actually submitting them to this. Mm-hmm. I remember that moment. I'm sure you do too. When that first infusion happens, I just remember watching the chemotherapy, you know, kind of marching through the line toward Zach. And like that, that recognition of I am pouring 
poison into my son. And that's my option here. You know, and just, it's so full, this whole journey is so full of all those moments. Like you just, you have to hit the ground running. And I'm sure you've experienced this too because of, you know, your experience of, you know, something's wrong, you have to fix it. So you just hit the ground running and you don't have a lot of time to just process what you're having to actually go through sometimes until the moment it hits and so that was one of my moments too it's like oh I don't want to do this because now this is it this is the sand in the line or the the line in the sand you're at this moment you've crossed over now you this is this is what you're doing to your child and you have to in order for them to live but it just is so gut-wrenching and and you can't go there with them and that's so scary as a mother, especially yeah. when they're, they're not at that point in their life yet where you would naturally do that. Cause you do that yeah. in motherhood. You, you turn them over to the world little by little. Mm-hmm. But I think with cancer, we're forced to do that so early. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's, it's a gut-wrenching experience. So how long was Zach's journey? Yeah, he kept, so there was the initial, they call it the MAP protocol. So that was the initial treatment. It's three different chemotherapies. It involves um, like three months of really intense, difficult chemotherapy. And then they resected the tumor. So he had his hip replaced. So there's recovery mm-hmm. from that. And then he had to go on for another several months of chemotherapy beyond that. Um, with osteosarcoma, what we're learning is there's two, two kind of dominant strains of it. One is really aggressive, mm-hmm. um, and it kind of shows itself by not being, it grows while on that first protocol. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other strain that is affected by the chemotherapy and it kind of shuts it down and those kids survive, the others don't. And what we found was right at the end of Zach's initial regimen, um, so this was probably about six or seven months in, he had developed a small tumor in his lung, which of course they didn't know just from the x-ray if it was cancer or not. We hoped mm-hmm. it wasn't, you know, because with the lungs, it can be residuals from an infection or something like that too. And uh, what it ended up being was cancer. So his cancer actually grew while he was on that first um, regimen. And so his his journey involved kind of what I imagine like the bully coming around the corner you know every every time we went for scans it was like going around the corner is the bully going to be there and smack us down or not and it just kept showing up and showing up he had four thoracotomies where they had to actually go in you know and cut it out of his lungs he had a collapsed lung at one point needed that repaired Um, and then it got to the point where his hips started really hurting again this was, we went to Europe as a family and we um, did some traveling there. And this was in 2012. So he'd been battling about two and a half years by then. And he was really having a hard time. He was limping a lot toward the end of that trip. Of course, we did a lot of walking. So I thought, well, maybe it's just with the, the prosthetic in his leg, if that's having an issue or something. But um, we ended up, after coming home from that trip about a month later, doing a PET scan and finding out that his whole pelvis, like the whole one half of his pelvis was completely involved. His pelvis was like Swiss cheese. It was full of cancer. And wow. he had, he had um, tumors in both of his lungs, which we knew about, but we were hoping to sort of keep those at bay and maybe remove them. Um, but once it hit his pelvis, 
our option at that point was, and knowing that he still had it in his lungs, but we had the option of cutting his pelvis in half. So he would lose his left leg, he would lose half of his pelvis, and he wouldn't be able to sit up for at least six months. Wow. Yeah, and he would still die from the cancer because it was in his lungs. Like you can only take so much of the lung before mm-hmm. you don't you run out of options. So we had that decision to process. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that by then he was, um, he was 17 years old. So he was able to be part of, as he was all along, because he was old enough to make decisions even at 14. But he decided he didn't want to do that. You know, and that's where it becomes this um, this question of does more days equal something better than less days, but more fullness, you know, and so we had to wrestle with those questions. And he really knew right away, I don't want to do that because he knew he was going to die anyhow from it, you know, so it's so we made that decision and truly thank God we did because it allowed him to focus outward more than inward, you know, like when we're dealing with health stuff, I think that's one of the frustrating things whenever we're sick is we have to be so focused on our bodies and, you know, nobody likes that. Um, And so this freed him up to a degree. I mean, he still struggled with pain and the suffering that that brings in a person's life and the limitations of the cancer and that kind of thing. But deciding that he was just really going to focus on living life freed him up to focus outward on the people in his life and to give. And he gave his son clouds and other songs that um, has led us to, I mean, it led to me writing the book, which has led to the movie um, clouds. that's going to be streamed on Disney plus in October. So his decision to, to do it the way he did led to his ability to really give of himself and his talent, which he was so passionate about, because um, he really recognized the power of his voice and his story to change people's lives. And, um, and that's what he chose. So how did that idea come about to write a song? Mm. Yeah, so he'd been a musician for a long time. I was so grateful. He, he was passionate about sports before he was diagnosed. Um, but he also was passionate about music. Um, and so when he was diagnosed with cancer and he couldn't play the sports he loved, he turned to music and he played the guitar. And so all throughout his journey, that was a real comfort to him because, you know, he would bring his guitar to the hospital with him. And mm-hmm. um, oftentimes it would just sit in the corner because he was too sick to play. But sometimes, you know, he would just sit and strum on it and toward that when we found out that he was terminal, so we knew he had about a, a year to live, I asked him um, to think about writing letters to his loved ones to say the things that he really wanted to say, but sometimes just the timing is off. And what mm-hmm. we found is as a family, we tried to communicate and talk openly. Like it wasn't mm-hmm. a secret Zach was going to die. We could talk about that. But it was something we did sparingly and with intention. You know, it was, it wasn't, we didn't talk about it a lot because who wants to talk about that all the time, but it was still mm-hmm. something we could talk about. But in that, I knew that 
you know, sometimes people like the, the dying person might be ready to talk about it, but the person they want to talk to isn't quite ready. And it can just be weird and clunky and awkward, especially mm-hmm. in our Western culture. We're, we're yeah. really freaked out by death in our Western culture. So I wanted him to be able to say the things that were really on his heart um, and not miss that opportunity. And so I asked him to think about writing letters and he said he, he liked that idea and he wanted to try and he did. I checked in with him a couple of times to see if he had, had done it. And he's like, ah, I've been trying, but the words aren't coming out right. And then again, it was about this time of year. He was, he decided he wanted to go to school his senior year. Um, mm-hmm. Even though he knew he was going to die, he wanted to be with his people. Like he wanted it to be as normal as he could. So he was at school and I was downstairs cleaning up um, the basement, which was an atrocious mess because that's where Zach hung out. He was a huge slob. He kept everything. And so I was like, okay, I got to clean this place up. I'm actually very proud of this description of how it smelled whenever things needed to be cleaned up. It smelled like goats who'd eaten tacos. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> so I was down there doing my purge and, you know, all of this stuff. And I was sorting through a lot of different papers he had laying around. And that's when I found... Um, his song Clouds, the lyrics to it were written out. And as I read it, I realized this was how he was going to say goodbye. It was very clear. And it was, I was so relieved when I was reading through. I mean, it was heartbreaking. I was sobbing. But I was so relieved to know that he was, he was dealing with it. He was, he knew he was going to die. And it was very clear in the song. That's what he was writing about. Um, but he was, it was coming out of him. And so I was, I was so relieved, like, with the, the play that your son was doing. Like, yeah, it's heartbreaking to see what's happening inside of them. But there's some relief that goes with that, too, because you understand it. You know where they are. You know what's going on underneath. And so that's how it was for me when I read that that song and when he came home I asked him like did you write these lyrics because up to that point they'd only he and his friends would only do covers of songs really mm-hmm. and um he said yeah and he pulled out his phone and he said I, I recorded it and that was the first time I heard him actually playing that song um and it was beautiful it was heartbreaking yet uplifting and just a beautiful song so, and then the story went from there. We shared it with the radio station we'd done an interview with, and they shared it with our local community, and then it just went from there um, and hasn't stopped yet. I feel like it's such a treasure that he left behind for you, oh. for you and your, your other children. Um, it's obviously a source of inspiration for other people around the world, but what a treasure that must be for you. Uh, we, we witness, so I actually, I work for an organization called Children's Cancer Research Fund. And my job in that, that um, nonprofit, we raise money for research, obviously. Um, but my job is to reach out to families like yours, who, you know, are walking the pediatric cancer path, that road, to share their stories. And I, I am so aware of what a gift it has been for us to be able to share Zach's legacy. And like, I get to talk about Zach all the time. I get to hear about him all the time. I, I know that's a privilege. 
because I know there are all sorts of kids out there who pass away who they don't have that their families aren't left with that and so it's a, it is definitely a huge gift I don't take it for granted at all that he's left us this um it is a treasure it's an absolute treasure I get to hear his voice his message to us I get to be encouraged by that but I also get to be encouraged by the people who he's inspired and so it's like he's still here he's still moving in the world and it, it's a huge gift um yeah so i don't take that for granted at all I'm, i feel like i'm going to go a little bit therapisty on you <laughs> <laughs> but um how did your family cope during the time knowing that his days were counted like could you share a little bit of what that actually looked like yes I would be happy to, because that is actually one of the reasons I wrote the book. When Zach died, things were really blowing up. Um, there was a documentary called My Last Days, Zach Sobiak, or Meet Zach, so Meet Zach Sobiak. And people were really affected by that documentary. And then, of course, they would hear a song. And there was, I was kind of getting a sense that people were thinking, we really had it together. You know, mm -hmm. like... Oh, this family is amazing. And, you know, we would hear that kind of thing. And I really wanted people to understand that this was hard and it was messy and it was clunky. And we did it sometimes very, very badly. Um, we, we struggled. I mean, there, there was hardship in our marriage my husband, Rob, and I, you know, it's, it's a tough thing when you've got a, one child among others who's really struggling and you're both kind of sort of super focused on that. You, and you're, you're both struggling with that in your own way. People grieve differently. And, and this path is grief. Even when the child is alive, you're grieving that the loss of the future you thought this child was going to have. So there's all of that plays in. Um, you think, oh, you lean on each other and you don't really. Sometimes you go into your siloed little places and you, there's not a lot of talking or communication that's going on because you're so focused on the job that needs to be done. And then all of a sudden you don't know each other and you're doing this differently and it's, it can get really frustrating and um, there can be a lot of anger and resentment yeah. that stirs up in that. So that happened. Um, the siblings there's jealousy, you know, and it, mm -hmm. it can be really hard. I know that happens with young ones, but it also happens with teenagers and early adulters, you know, that there's that struggle of just like, why does he get everything? Like, oh yeah, he's got cancer. Okay. But why does he get all this extra privilege? Um, so there can be some, some resentment there. And the hard part about it when, when it's older kids, they feel it, but they know they shouldn't, you know, like there's this sort of guilt that goes with it. Mm -hmm. And so there's navigating that. Um, and that's, that's messy. You know, it was, there were times when like my oldest daughter, Allie, they have their own emotions that they're dealing with around this. So not only are they sort of competing with this sibling, I mean, she, we found out Zach was, had osteosarcoma a month after she started her freshman year of college. So all these milestones in her life, um, we found out he was dying 
around the same the same just after she found got engaged so this whole year of planning for a wedding we're also counting down zach's days and at one point it looked like they were going to line up we weren't sure Uh, they're gonna we were we had to choose actually and i write about that too about where we were going to be by zach's bedside or at Allie's wedding you know so there's all these decisions about how you're going to live your life with cancer and then for us death mixed in with it so what are you going to put on hold what aren't you going to and and it's not just you that has to make that decision it's the family and so it was messy and i really wanted people to in the book to really kind of feel that with us um Mm -hmm. because we made it through we're thriving now we still are a messy clunky family like everybody's family but we made it through and I wanted people to sort of enter into that part of the story with us of, yeah, this was hard and it wasn't a breeze for any of us, but there's hope. There's still hope if, if you communicate, you know, like I wanted to show a faith was a huge part of our story. So I wanted to show the, the role that faith played, how our community came together for us, how we chose as a family even though there was frustration and anger and sometimes massive disagreement about how we were going to do things we still chose to communicate and the goal was we want to come out of this loving each other respecting each other and together that's our goal and i think we're doing it you know we're we're okay that's so good to hear we're tighter than we were i think before so that can happen but it takes a lot of work it's struggle as a therapist you know and i think i'm going to botch this i've been thinking about this for the past few days and it's like a week ago i knew exactly what the saying was and then in the past few days i've been like why can't I remember how this actually goes? <laughs> it's, happens to me. it's like taking a test. You just freeze yeah. it. <laughs> but um, it basically, the concept is like you lean, when you're going through crisis, especially as like partners, right? You're, you and your, your husband or your wife or whoever's listening, right? Your spouse. Um, when you're going through a crisis, you want to lean and turn into each other, but not away. And like you say, people kind of look at us. Um, I don't really share a lot of the, the hard, intimate details. Um, and then recently during this month, I was like, okay, I'm going to kind of share a little bit more. And my husband's like, are you okay? <laughs> like, you're going really dark. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, it's not that I'm going to, this is, this is the reality. And I feel like everyone is just like, you're so strong. You're doing so great. Like y'all are the best. And you know, you're really like, sometimes you just feel like you're drowning and you're, what I've noticed is that you get afraid to talk to your spouse because you know, your spouse is going through his own battle with it. And so it's like, I don't want to add to this burden where he's maybe barely hanging on. My husband, he's always like, he always seems like he's got it all together. He, he reminds me a lot, like when I read through the book, he reminds me a lot of your spouse. Like once he's made his mind up, that's that's it. He's focused, you know? Yeah. Um, and so me, I'm a little, I'm probably more on the emotional, well, I am on the more emotional side. <laughs> so, you know, I found it difficult sometimes to, 
want to share my struggles with him. But then I found it difficult to share it with anybody because I'm like, there comes a point where it's like, literally you're dealing with a battle maybe every single day, sometimes multiple times a day. And nobody can understand and nobody can provide words of comfort during that Mm -hmm. time. It's like, I'm so sorry you're going through that. And it's like, well, I didn't really gain anything by sharing this story. (laughs) I got like no consolation from it. And so at that time, you know, obviously for me, I, I lean into my faith and I'm just like, this is all I've got. Like God knows how I feel about this. He has me in this moment. And even though this really stinks, it stinks that I can't really share it with other people. And then I feel like, you know, even that thought process of, I can't really share this with other people. I feel like that in itself, I'm going to go all like spiritual, but I feel like that's Satan's way of holding you back and making you believe these lies because there are people out there who are willing to listen. You know, I find myself sometimes I'm like, can I be honest with a friend? I'm like, can I be honest? Let me tell you this, this, and this. And I'll tell them all the hard things that I'm trying to process. And I'm like crying through it. And then I'm apologizing. I'm so sorry I said this. I'm so sorry I'm crying with you. Like I'm laying this all out. Like it's just, it's so heavy, you know? And if it's so heavy that we have a hard time speaking with other people around us, our friends and, you know, and whatnot, like it's even more difficult when everybody in the house is dealing with that exact same trauma and everyone's trying to come to term with it Some days, you know, someone might be struggling and you're doing okay. And so to the the person who's struggling doesn't want to bring down the person who finally has taken a a breath for a few days from Mm -hmm. the situation. And so, yeah, it's very, very hard. And I think, like you said, your, your mission in writing this was you wanted to expose the reality that even though you as a family look like you've got it together and you're filled with faith, that it still takes a toll on everybody in the, in the household, you know, and not even just in the household, but your immediate family or not immediate, I guess, technically your extended family, right? The grand grandparents, cousins, it affects everybody. So, um, it sounds, you know, I I appreciate your transparency and all of that because it is something that needs to be, um, shown more, I think, um, so that people can kind of understand and they can at least enter into our world and help yes. provide a, a little bit of a, you know, support system. Like just because we look like we're doing okay, doesn't mean that we are. Yeah. You, know? you just, you described chapter 13 in the book. <laughs> I mean, you described exactly what was happening in our marriage. You know, I was just thinking as you were describing what's happening in a family and how it's so hard to lean on each other because you're afraid you're going to tip the other one over if you do it. Like if we were, if we were suffering from physical like trauma, mm-hmm. we would totally get this concept, right? Because like I have this big gash and I'm, I'm bleeding. Well, Rob's mm-hmm. not going to want to come in and say, look, I got, <laughs> I got a paper cut today. You know, <laughs> can you help me with this? Like, that's what it's like is, mm-hmm you know, we just have to be so careful in that area. And I think what you were talking about as far as sharing, how hard it is to share with people who aren't in it and how there's that sort of reticence about that and reluctance. Um, I experienced that too. I got very, I used to be the kind of person that if I was suffering from anything, like anything, I'd had 
I'd have to talk to six people in order to process it. Me too. Me too. I just got very sort of closed off. And I was thinking about like, why is that? Well, I think part of it is when you do reach out to someone and you share that suffering and they don't really understand, it's so isolating Mm -hmm. to get that affirmation that you really are kind of in this, that people don't understand. And you don't want to expose yourself to that because they don't get it. And there's so many things that people say um, that are just so harmful. Mm -hmm. I spoke with a woman yesterday who, her daughter had um, AML in the 80s and needed a a bone marrow transplant. It was hugely complicated back then and very few survived. And she, she said she hasn't prayed in 30 years because somebody quoted some awful, I mean, it was a scripture verse, but it was completely inappropriate for the situation, basically saying, you just need to deal with it because God is God. (laughs) And it's like, there's so much hurt in that because it's just people who want to, who really don't want to embrace your suffering. They can't hold it. And so what they end up doing is just backing off with their hands up and throwing something out that makes them feel better, but not you. It's, it's just very evident that they're not willing to enter in or to hold you in that space for a little bit. And it's hard to find people who will do that. But like you said, they are out there and they're willing to do it. And I was very fortunate that I had really good friends and siblings. I'm one of seven kids and I had all these amazing siblings that were just right in it with me and could hold that space for me. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. I think a lot of that is, um, like you said, people are uncomfortable with other people's pain. So like, um, what we learned in grad school, I'm like, you're going to be a therapist by the end of this, <laughs> by the end of this interview. But like what we learned in grad school <laughs> was how often people are so uncomfortable with somebody crying, right? Immediately when you see someone cry, you're like, oh, don't cry, don't cry. When that doesn't make that person feel better. It actually makes them feel like, wow, what I'm doing is too much for you. Like, or I'm wrong in feeling this way. Like maybe I shouldn't be crying. And so people are just so uncomfortable with pain that they throw out, like you said, I call them platitudes, I guess, you know, but they throw out these sayings of like scripture or, you know, God doesn't give you more than you can handle. And it's like, well, that's not true. If you look at scripture, there's a lot of examples of that being way too much, you know, um, never does it say in scripture, he doesn't give us more than we can handle. He actually says, or scripture says a lot about suffering, suffering, suffering. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) So, um, but you know, it's just this whole idea of like, people are just really uncomfortable with watching the suffering and they think that by saying something, what they consider encouragement, that it will encourage us because they're like, well, it sounds like it would apply to their life. But in reality, it's just minimizing. And I've had to tell, I'm like terrible. I'm the therapist. So it's like, I think it's even harder for me to find someone to speak to because I know how to listen as a therapist. And so when I would tell my story and people would like minimize. I literally had to like stop them and say, please stop minimizing my pain. Please stop minimizing my fear. 
you know, and I think if I wasn't a therapist, I probably wouldn't have said that. And I probably would have left that conversation feeling a little like, you know, like they don't understand. I, I think I've learned to get there, but yes, I was way too accommodating of those kinds of statements. And I think that one of the reasons is that I wanted to, when people put that stuff on you, what they're saying is when they say the things that you know are just to make them feel better and not you, for me, what I would end up doing, and I don't do this so much anymore, but what I used to do was like, you, you pick up on that. You know what they're looking for is to feel better about your situation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you like, I would go in and be like, oh yeah, well this, this, and this, and I, I, I'd have to make them feel better. And I'm like, this is really exhausting. (laughs) I know, I know. I have to do this for you because I'm tired. That's how I would feel. There were times when, um, you know, people are trying to be empathetic and they just don't really understand the language of empathy. So what they end up doing, especially like when we found out Zach was terminal, people would come in and say things like, oh, my uncle died from cancer. Mm-hmm. Thanks. You know, now I got to deal with that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and it was like, okay, I get you're trying to be empathetic and you think that there's some part of your experience that you can connect with mine. But it just, you know, that's, that's not what I need right now. One of the things that I've been running into lately, um, this time of year, this happens quite a bit. And it's so frustrating is kids are going off to college. And so a lot of parents, when, especially if it's their first child, will say things like, um, oh, I know how you felt. My kid just went off to college and it's so heartbreaking when your child leaves. And they're using their child going off to college in comparison to me burying my child. Mm. And they think it's the same somehow. Or they're trying to, you know, give me say I understand some part of what you went through but they say it all wrong and what it triggers in me is basically what you just said is like I have a paper cut to somebody who just lost their limbs in an accident like they're not the same they're not Mm -hmm. in the same category and that's I mean it's devastating when people do that and Rob and I both have had people who have done that literally like cried on us because their kids just went to college and they think it somehow has some connection to the suffering that we've gone through. And I, I get it on some level, but I have no idea where I'm going with this story, but it is one of the, <laughs> one of the frustrating things about when you carry this kind of pain, the awkwardness of people wanting to trying to share in it or trying to protect themselves and what we have to manage as parents of kids with cancer, of kids who've passed away. It's tough. You know, I, I really am looking forward to reading through the rest of this book. Um, as I mentioned to you before we started this, I have three little kids and I literally just got the book and uh, I spoke to Blair at ACCO and she's like, oh yeah, I got the audiobook. I was like, there's an audiobook? Why didn't I think about this? <laughs> you know, so I started like trying to do both of them at the same time, but I'm pretty excited about reading through the rest of it because it's just, you know, as a, even though for me as a cancer parent, it's so like, I literally read like the first page and I'm like, <laughs> you know, like completely 
holding back these emotions because it's so relatable to me. Like I understand where you've been. Um, I, I don't understand the entire story, obviously, because my, my child's prognosis at this point seems to, you know, we're at last treatment and we're praying that his body does what it's supposed to do and keeps cancer away. Um, so I'm not going to sit, I'm not going to pretend to sit here and say, I understand what your, what your family has gone through throughout the entire journey, because that, that wouldn't be fair either. But I do understand the first part of the book mm -hmm. and all the struggles that you've been going through and just the realization of like your life being completely different and that the unknown of the future, like, what does this mean? What is it going to look like after this is all over? We're about to ring the bell and I'm like terrified of celebrate. Like I want to celebrate it. Cause at the beginning I was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to have a huge party. We got this big backyard. We're going to have all sorts of tables. I'm going to bring in a band, have a barbecue, you know, big old Texas style celebration here. <laughs> and now that we get to the end, obviously with COVID it's like yeah. any, any of those ideas are shot anyway, but it, like, I'm afraid to say we beat cancer. I'm afraid to say that because yeah. you don't know. Yeah. And at the beginning I did, you know, and I would say from time to time, even now, like I still have moments where I've been alone with my other two children. And I've, in the beginning, I didn't know how, like what his prognosis was looking like. Cause it wasn't, you know, he was intermediate risk. It wasn't great. And sitting there staring at your kids and saying, is this it? Like, is this what my future is going to look like? Yeah. You know, and that sinking feeling of this could, this could be my future and how, like as a therapist for me, knowing, I, like I lost my brother a year ago or two years ago now, technically. And so like this whole process of coming to my child's diagnosis, that was challenging of itself because I was dealing with my, my brother and I were really close. Um, and I always, like, I was the, he was the baby. I was number four of five kids and his loss just, I remember going through this like identity crisis of like, yes, I'm a big sister. Like my role was to be protective of him and, and all these different things. And so just realizing very intimately what grief was like for someone that I love so, so dearly, we were very similar. Um, we came, we had same friends and everything because we both went off to college and kind of found God at, at our college campus. And we had the same friends because we went to the same college and he was my roommate for a long time. And so, um, so, you know, that feeling of, I have experienced loss very, not too long ago. And knowing that potentially that is something that will impact my kids. Like, I don't, I don't know what the rest of my child's story is at this point. You know, um, I know that we have him for one more, hopefully one more birthday, you know? Um, and so, but knowing the impact that it has on the family system, like I can't even fathom mm -hmm. as a parent, what you've gone through with watching your young child pass away who hasn't finished living out his dreams. You know, like we as parents imagine our children 
growing up, getting married, you know, falling in love, finding what they're passionate about and living that out, you know, and hoping and praying that they become these amazing people. And that's something that, you know, cancer parents are afraid to, to think about now. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I can very much relate to that. I, I remember that being, so there was the like, okay, we're going to, Zach is going to die and having to process that. But then the realization of what exactly what you're talking about, of what does our family look like after? He was the guy in our family. He was kind of the hub, the touchstone for everybody in the family. He was the guy that said, let's go do something. Cause he was the extrovert, you know? So what happens to us when he's gone? How do we, how do we continue to be a family? And we continue to be a family. It feels like we're in a big truck with a square tire. <laughs> you know, it's clunky, but we still do it. But yeah, that was the terrifying thing of like, how are we gonna, how are we gonna function without him? One of the ways, um, and you might have some like clinical insight into this as well, but one of the ways that I did deal with it was in preparing for all of that, uh, Zach dying, the whole thing, that last year of his life, almost every night I would create space every evening. I had a playlist on my iPod that said sad songs. And I, for an hour, I would sit in my favorite rocking chair and I would go there in my head. I would picture myself sitting next to Zach's bedside as he was dying. I would picture... I would play out almost like a watching a play in my head of what does it look like at his funeral? Who's going to be there? How am I going to interact with people? How's it going to be looking at Zach in the casket? What is that going to feel like? And then after, like, what's that going to be like our first Christmas without him? How is that going to feel? And I would play it out in my head. I would sob and then I would take my earbuds out and I would go to bed. And then I would live the day the next day, tapping into the joy of that day, knowing that that night I would go into that space and allow myself to think about it. Um, And at the time, I thought if people knew I was doing this, they would think I was really weird. But looking back, I think it's the thing that sort of saved me too, because I was, I had like the muscle memory when I was there actually living out the things I kind of already knew how it was going to go because I've lived it out so many times in my head. And um, I think it's the thing that allowed me to get out of bed every morning because I could create space for it. I got to ask, do you feel like having done that, it took away some of that sting? I think it, it never looks like what you prepared for. Mm -hmm. Um, it just doesn't, you can't ever really feel that, but I do think it took away, it helped, um, take away some of this thing, you know, it, it's going to play out later, but I think it was, I prepared for it. And anytime you prepare for something, I think you're just, your recovery helps a little bit. I mean, it's not quite so, it didn't floor me. And I don't know, yeah. maybe, <laughs> that's just weird. And, you know, I'm a little off that way, but that's, I chose to do it that way. And as I look back, I think that is one of the key 
parts of surviving it was I allowed myself to go there. I've watched other people who were just in complete denial about it. Mm-hmm. And I've watched their lives, I, I've watched them struggle in life afterwards. So I was actually, what I was choosing to do was mourn Zach while he was still here. And I think there was some softening part of that because he was safe asleep down in his bedroom, but I was mourning the loss of him. And so there was this, I don't know, it was just a, I think it created a smoother transition for me. That's the side that people don't see. Like you, I'm sure you weren't like posting about this on Facebook saying, you know, I sat there every night crying my eyes out to songs, sad songs, imagining my child going through the worst thing, literally the worst situation that I could imagine. Um, That is, there is like a, you know, what you did, there is like a therapeutic approach of handling grief and sorrow and depression. It's like, you tell people, um, box it up, you know, like let yourself open up that box, give yourself the time. For some people, it might be five minutes. For some people like you, I guess you took an hour with the songs. Um, you allow yourself a space to actually feel the emotions because by not feeling it, it's going to manifest itself in your body or in your relationships or, you know, the way that you process every day, it's going to, it's going to show up. It's a monster. So you have to allow yourself these feelings and then, you know, going into that safe space and knowing like setting a timer, literally like setting a timer and saying, okay, time's up, wipe the tears away, take a deep breath, go take a drink of water, distract yourself and don't come back to it. And for some people, you know, at the beginning, it might be, if you have to come back to it, then fine, come back to it in like three hours. And next time set that a little bit longer for four hours, then maybe, you know, shoot for the goal of every day. But I've noticed like for myself, um, near, near the end of everything, it's like, I'm feeling more the emotions because I've spent so much time keeping it together for myself, for my children, like that right now, it's like, I'm really more vulnerable because I feel everything that we've really had to go through and knowing that the transition isn't going to just be like, hooray, we're done. You know, it's, it's just a chapter two to the story. And, um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that you allowed yourself to feel the emotions. Cause like you said, some people literally don't. And I, I've been going to a therapist. So I like <laughs> once a week, I let myself have those moments or usually in the car, like mine is my yeah. car ride. Same thing. I put my, my sad songs. I have a little playlist that's called like warrior. And it's all about, you know, God finding us in our suffering mm-hmm. and not necessarily that God is going to heal because I did learn through my brother's loss that miracles happen, but they don't look the way that you want them to look. Yeah. You know, God and has so, a different economy with miracles. That's yes, he does. I learned that. <laughs> and so, which is, you know, having known that, like not going into this trauma with these that naive sense of like, God, it's going to like, you know, full faith. Cause I do have faith in the Lord. It's just this. I also know that yeah. his design isn't going to be necessarily how I want my prayers answered, but he will answer the prayers. It's just not 
necessarily how I, I want them to. And so knowing that going into this, I feel like has just been a little bit more difficult, you know, managing and maneuvering through all of the treatment. But um, yeah, I, I lost where I was going with that. <laughs> I'm curious though. I'm curious to hear your connection between it making it more difficult and knowing that God doesn't necessarily answer miracles the way that we want him to. Yeah. So for me personally, look, you're interviewing me now. <laughs> I know. I kind of like this. <laughs> um, for me personally, it, I'll be honest, like the first nine weeks for me, I was a monster. <laughs> like I researched and researched and researched till I just couldn't look at it anymore. Like I got to week nine and had this moment of, I'm not in control. Nothing that I do. Like I have, and I would tell people like, thank you for your prayers because I need those because I'm struggling with my own prayer life. Like I feel like I can pray, but I haven't had to pray for anything since my brother's loss. And so I was like, yeah, I'd pray for you. Like I still believe God grants miracles and seeing that God still grants miracles and not having had it granted for my brother was like a stab in the heart. Like what happened, God? Did I not pray enough? Was I, you know, did I not pray it right? Like what happened? Like, why didn't the, why didn't this miracle happen? And how does that, like, how am I supposed to pray moving forward? Mm -hmm. Like, how do I pray for my child and feel like you're listening to my prayers? And I know in theory you're listening, but are you going to heal my child or is part of my story continuing to choose you? Like Job had to choose you through the loss of all of his children and the loss of all of his, you know, belongings and stuff. And um, am I going to have to walk that path and continue to choose you? I will, I will choose you. Um, undoubtedly, like it may be a little bit harder every time to feel connected to God, but I will still believe in God and in his power and his mercy. And so going through this for the first nine weeks, it was a lot of research and doubting my prayer life. I'm like, I'm going to go really Catholic. And since you're Catholic, you're, you're totally going to understand I'm me. But eat it up. Yep. I know um, that ninth week, I, a lot of like, I feel like God just was sending me a lot of different signs. And even just the fact that, you know, he led us to Houston, had people come in on their day off. Um, the day after we found out my mother like was sharing a message that she received from a family member about her, my brother's loss. Like they had sent it to her that week and it was a scripture verse. It happened to be my favorite scripture verse. And it's, it's not a very well-known verse. It's Psalm 73, 25, but basically the concept is I totally botch it every time I am a true Catholic. Like if I try and quote scripture, I will botch it. But basically the concept is like, who have I in heaven, but you earth has nothing I desire beside you. Though my flesh and my heart may fail, God is the strength of my heart forever, right? Or God is my strength and my portion forever. When she started reading the scripture verse, and I've literally told my husband, because after my brother passed away, I've like planned my, my own funeral. <laughs> no, that sounds really morbid, but like, no, I'm, like I get it. <laughs> I'm like, here's where I want to be buried. Make sure you have the scripture verse on the plaque and whatnot, you know? And um I told him, make sure you have the scripture verse. And so when my mom's reading this to me and it's in Spanish, she's reading to me in Spanish. I said, is that Psalm 73, 25? And she said, yes. 
And I just felt like the Lord was just like, I'm here. I'm present. Like this message was sent to my mom, not for me, because nobody else knew what was going on at this point. It was the day within 12 hours of finding out that he had a tumor. Um, so I felt like the Lord was speaking to me and throughout this whole process, like little things like that were happening. And so that last, like the ninth week, a friend of mine sent me a message about going to um, Our Lady of Lords. And so I had felt on my heart for weeks now that I wanted to take my son there. I was like, this is my (laughs) pun intended, I guess my Hail Mary here, my Hail Mary pass, right? (laughs) Like, um, I literally like, this is what I want to do. And so I talked about it with my, my husband and he was like, yeah, okay, absolutely. And so that morning, my, this girl that I hadn't spoken to in like eight, nine years, right. She was part of my Catholic group. Um, she sent me a message and she said, Hey, I read this, uh, in the Magnificat and thought of you. And it was a story of a man who went to Lourdes who had a sarcoma in his hip and was completely healed um, after he bathed in the waters. And so I, you know, that morning before I even saw that story, my husband and I were like, yes, we're doing this. As soon as we have the, you know, the medical clearance to go, we are going to take this trip. Um, This was all pre COVID obviously. So um, (laughs) that happened. And so that week I just really felt like really start asking specifically for that intercession, St. Peregrine, you know, Padre Pio is one of my favorites. And um, I started really asking for the intercession of Our Lady of Lourdes. And that there was the week of basically, it was an evening that by chance my child wanted me. And at the beginning of all this, he wanted daddy because daddy was like constantly holding him. And, you know, he wanted daddy. Um, I was more logistic person. This is how apparently we cope, right? I was like, give me the information. I'll keep track of everything. I'll have those conversations. My husband's listening, but also tending to my child while I'm doing all the, you know, the clerical type stuff, administrative stuff. And so I, um, that week I ended up having, you know, just kept praying. I was like, I'll pick up my rosary. I'll pray that rosary. Even if all I could do was 10, 10 Hail Marys, one little decade, that's what I managed for the first few days. And then I'd like built it up. And then one day when my son said, mom, you know, I want you to sleep here. And we were having this conversation about, you know, you know, honey, um, he said to me, I want to see Jesus. And I said, oh, maybe you will see Jesus. He will come to you and he will lay his hands on you and he will say you're healed. But knowing, you know, in your faith, like in the process where I was, at least it's like having faith that he, the Lord can do that but not knowing if Jesus coming to heal him means like healing him for all of eternity, you know? Um, but I wouldn't, I wanted my child to hold on to his faith, his childlike faith. And so I was like, he's going to come in the middle of the night while you're sleeping and put his hands on you. And so, you know, he went to bed and he was like, yeah, okay, great. Jesus is going to come see me. Um, I went, slept downstairs and then he called me up in the middle of the night to sleep next to him. And I'm one of those people, like I, I had this like very spiritual encounter with my brother after he, he had passed away. Um, it was truly beyond a dream to me. Like I felt like I was there, like I could hear him. It was like surround sound. It was like the craziest thing ever. Um, and so in, in my mind, I'm like, this is, this must be what, like when Jesus allows people to like kind of transcend, you know, and see 
visions of things. I, like I was like, I, I honestly feel like this is part of it. So anyway, I know I'm, I'm probably going cuckoo here, but basically, oh, so I'm, um, I'm with you. <laughs> so I had that experience. And so that evening I woke up and I had that feeling where I was like, there's something in the room. Like I can't explain it. I've had those feelings before. And I've usually had, the, actually, I've always had those follow up with some sort of visit of some sort. And that the last one was my brother. And that was almost a year prior. And so having that experience, I literally was like, what? Like, who's coming to visit? And I refuse to open my eyes because I don't like it. (laughs) I don't like these experiences. So I'm like, no, I'm just going to go back to sleep. And I literally said, if you're here to bother me, just go away. Right. Um, And I told my husband about it the next morning. I said, I, I had someone visit last night, but I, they didn't show themselves to me. I didn't see anybody. They didn't interact with me. It was the weirdest thing. And it's not like I'm literally seeing ghosts or anything. Okay. Like this is not like a common occurrence. So when it does occur, I'm always like, there's something, something different about this experience. And so my husband was like, Oh, that's strange. You know? Um, I wonder if he always like listens to it with some level of skepticism because <laughs> he doesn't experience that, but he's heard me talk about it so many different times. So that had happened. And then two days later we had the MRI CT scan and it clicked for me that in, in my honest opinion, I feel that that was a holy presence in my son's room, not intended for me to see I could feel it because I've, I guess I just, I'm have one of those, I'm one of those people who can sense something, but I never sleep with my, my son in his room. Um, during that time, we never like that never happened. And so for me to be there that evening, and it was the night after I said, Jesus will come to you and lay his hands on your, on your head and tell you that the tumor is gone. Like that was this aha, like I, this is, this has to be it because he was NED. The tumor was completely gone. He had full, you know, response to chemo. And so, yeah. Um, you know, even with that, it's still like this, okay, Lord, like I know you grant miracles. And then I also know that sometimes it just means more time, you know, yeah, you just you um, need to keep reading, keep reading the book. Okay. You, <laughs> I had a very, very, you're speaking my language. I, I get it. <laughs> I do. Yeah. I really do. Like, I don't even know how to pray. Cause if I yeah. put all my eggs in this basket, am I just like being one of those people that is begging for a miracle that maybe you're not mm-hmm. intending for me? And is that mm-hmm. my best prayer? And how do I do this? How do I navigate this? How do I pray? I don't know how to pray. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, like, what is the formula that all these other people who have had those miracles granted, what is the, how are they praying to get those miracles granted? And how do I change my prayer to match up and and achieve a miracle? Right. I I think it's kind of that question that lingered in the back of my mind. Um, And then did you you know that we went to Lourdes? No, I didn't. You got to keep reading. Well, I I got to the point, or no, you actually just said that you went to Europe. So I was thinking to myself, I wonder if they went to Lourdes, but you know, you did go to Lourdes. Oh, I'm going to have to finish reading. Yeah. And actually it's, it's Lourdes that I think, so this is a classic example of the miracle, not always looking like it's 
supposed to in our heads. Yeah. We went hoping for healing. And then a month later is when we found out he was terminal. But look what happened. You know, and you'll read part of, uh, so the, the byline for the first title, Fly a Little Higher, was how God answered a mother's small prayer in a big way. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So the big prayer was, okay, if he has to go. And so this was my wrestling match with how to pray and Mm -hmm. where it kind of played out. And the end of the prayer was, uh, if if he has to go, like if that is just what has to happen, I want it to be for something big. I just want one person's life changed forever. That's what I want. It's for your grace to change somebody's life because of Zach. And I don't even have to know about this person. I don't have to hear about them. I just want it to happen. And then millions. And I'm not exaggerating about, like, this thing has been life-changing for at least thousands, but it's touched millions of lives because that documentary has been seen 22 million times. And now this movie is going out there. And so what I see is when we can detach from our will, and let God do his thing. He does it in big ways, bigger than we can even, I mean, seriously, Disney is going to have a movie about our family. Yeah. Speaking of, um, how did that even come about? I know. So you wrote the book and obviously he had, Zach had achieved celebrity status, you know, with the song that he wrote, but how did the movie come about? Like how long ago did they approach you for that? Or did you guys seek them out? Like, how did that happen? Mm-hmm. This, so we've never sought any of this stuff out. So Justin Baldoni is the director of the movie, but he was also the director and producer of the My Last Days series. And so he spent five days with our family along with his crew before Zach died. So he knew oh. Zach. Um, he really, and it's interesting because his crew, when they were at our house, um, there were eight of them. Justin's Baha'i, so he's not even Christian. We had um, someone who was Jewish, an atheist, and two Muslim cousins, and then our Catholic family. And it was like the most beautiful thing, just exploring, talking about deep, deep things like death. You know, we knew Zach was dying, and that's what they were here to talk about. And mm-hmm. so, um, I just love how how God is just like, okay, here's this crazy thing I'm going to do in a way that you're never, ever going to expect it. And so Justin is the one that was the director. He's the one that really wanted to make this into a movie. He'd never made a movie before. But he asked me right after Zach died, can I make a movie? Will you just give me your story? And I said, no. (laughs) I'm writing a book. We have to we have to steward this story as best we can because our mission at the beginning when we decided as a family to share the story was because we wanted to do it to help other kids. It wasn't Mm -hmm. to glorify Zach in any way. And he was on board with that too. Like, I don't want to tell my story just to make it about me. It has to be for something. So I, I said, no, you can't have the story. Like he had some idea he was going to do like a go fund me fundraiser and do this and make it up as he went along. I'm like, no, we need to actually get a film agent and do it the way that, you know, we should do it. So we did. And it was just this sort of miraculous aligning of events where he ended up at the same agency that the film ended up with. Mm -hmm. And the film 
people paired the movie, the script, the screenplay up with Justin as oh, funny. the package. Like, yeah, it's he's got his own story he wants to write about too, about how he sees it as Zach just weaving the whole thing together. Um, so that's how it ended up. And he, he boldly went to Warner Brothers and said, hey, I have this film. And they'd never made a film like that before. They're always into like the big superhero films, Harry Potter, you know, all the big stuff. Mm-hmm. And they had just decided they wanted to get into some smaller budget films. And so Justin went and said, hey, what about this one? And over a year and a half, it made every hurdle. So it was the first film that Warner Brothers decided to make like that. And it's the first time they did a deal where they went half in on it with Justin's company called Wayfair. They'd never done a deal like that before. Well, wow. his because he wanted to make sure that it got to a place where people were going to see it. So then Warner Brothers, after COVID hit, decided, well, we're just going to stuff this on HBO Max, which nobody has. <laughs> like it's just, and mm-hmm. that's what Justin was fearing is they're just going to tuck this away. So because he'd made that deal, he said, no, that was the trigger. If you decide to put this on your streaming channel, I get it. So Justin would get it back and then he could market it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So they had to abide by that agreement and they're like scratching their heads going, how did we let this slip? because it's not something that they usually do but they did Justin got it back and that's when Disney came along and said we love this and this was the first original film that they didn't have any part in creating themselves that they purchased like this that's been seen nowhere else so they have the other franchises like Pixar and Star Wars but they've never purchased a film like this it's an original movie that they didn't produce so this story has done all sorts of firsts and none of us have pushed it other than Justin. He's the one that went out and, you know, sort of marketed it. So now it's on Disney plus and it's, that's the miracle. Like Bob Iger, who is the big dude at Disney was like, this is an amazing story. And I can't believe that we get it. And I'm so excited to share it with people. (laughs) I am so excited to watch it. Like I can't even, I, I just can't even explain how excited. Like I'm, I'm very well. I love movies as it is. Like my kids and I, we sit here and we watch movies every day. It's like part of our treat, you know. It's like, oh, we finished homeschooling. Let's go watch a movie, you know. Um, and we're like all about Disney Plus. Um, so I'm super excited to well, get a chance. It is really funny because the Lord scene is in it. And Justin, who's not even Christian, is the one that really pushed for that. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it it is. It's beautiful. They did a beautiful job, and it was so fun. We got to be part of the filming. They did the filming up in Montreal, so we took, like, 70 of our family and friends up there. We got to be extras in the movie, and so that was just super fun. And um, it was so strange. I got to be there for the first week of filming, which starts, it kicks off with the table read. And the table read is the first and only time that all of the cast and crew are together. And they read through the screenplay together. And as they were reading that scene, I was like, so embarrassed. I just wanted to crawl under the table. It's, first of all, it's really weird hearing actors like, speaking for you you with each other it's bizarre 
So there's this kind of vulnerability that goes with that. But then they started reading the Lord's scene. And I'm like, oh my gosh, we so like freaks. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I totally get that. <laughs> you know, just wanted to crawl under the table. And like, oh my gosh, nobody, they're going to think we're crazy. What? <laughs> like, so afterwards, a couple of days afterwards, I, they took me into this gigantic, like, um, like warehouse where they build the sets and they were they're like oh that's the lord's scene so the guy that was taking me around um i learned i don't know through conversation that he's an atheist and so we're looking at the lord's scene i'm like okay just have to ask you are we crazy like do you think we're crazy because of that is that nuts and he's like yeah it's a little weird but he said you know there's some universal language with water being rebirth and renewal and he said I think it's beautiful I love that it's in this film I get it and I'm like oh okay <laughs> good to hear but yeah it's um I just I was just in an interview with their local Catholic newspaper the Catholic Spirit and the reporter was asking about the Lord's scene because he'd seen the, he got a early viewing of the movie and he goes, so did you, I, he found out that Justin wasn't Christian and um, he said, oh, so I suppose you really had to push for the Lord's scene to be in there. And I said, no, not at all. He actually was the one that pushed for it to be in there. And he was really blown away by that. So I just, I'm so, it's like a fire hose of grace coming at me. Like, God is answering my prayer in so many beautiful ways. And so I hope that even though ours was an ending that you desperately don't want, and I completely understand that because I've been there, the miracles happen. And that verse that you were talking about in Psalm, was it 73? Mm -hmm. That's the miracle that happens is in your weakness, God comes and animates you through his grace. He fills that space. All you have to do is say, okay, I'm going to be open-handed. And so I would encourage you in your prayer life to pray for that grace, to be detached from what you want and allow God's grace to fill you and then God to take over because it works. <laughs> you, know? you know, you say that. And, um, I think through my brother's loss, I think is really where I've had to learn that process of letting go. And, um, I remember before my son was diagnosed, I would tell people like, something's wrong. Like I, I can't, can't get any doctors to, you know, to see anything, you know, we didn't, at that point we hadn't had any imaging and it took me about a month from the time that I started seeing doctors to get an MRI done. Um, and I obsessed over it. I mean, to the point where my little, he was three years at that time. He was like, mom, stop looking at my face. <laughs> you know, like, because I would be there like, like tilt your head kiddo this way, this way. Okay. Now tilt it this way. And like literally taking pictures of him. And he's like, stop mom. You know, he's three yeah. years old. And so like, then I had to learn how to do it very subtly. And I'm sitting there talking, like you said, 
you, I would call like six different people and be like, this is what I'm dealing with. I, like, is this normal? Like, should I be pushing more? Like, this is what yeah. they've told me. And so there were times that, you know, cause I have a cousin who's a, well, actually my best friend is a physician's assistant, a PA. And my cousin is also a PA. So I would talk to them about it a little, you know, on the more like medical side, I guess. And they would say, he's okay. He's going to be okay. Adriana, it's okay. He'll be okay. And literally, I know they wanted to like ease my anxiety, but literally what followed those thoughts were, he's okay. Even if he does, literally, this is what I've said every time they said that, even if he has cancer, he will be okay. Whether he lives or not, he will be okay. Yep. I won't be okay, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but he will be okay. Um, and at the end of the end of the day, that was the consolation for me, I guess, was yeah. I, I know I've dealt with loss and I know how hard it is and I know it it will be, you know, exponentially more difficult with your child versus like my sibling, but you know, knowing that I've I've been through loss. And it takes time and I will be okay. I will still grieve, but I will be okay. Like I can still put one foot in front of the other the next day. Um, that was, that was kind of what helped me through that part. And I, yeah. you know, I, I don't know why those were the immediate thoughts because we didn't have a diagnosis at that point. And, you know, what parent says, oh yeah, my child's going to be okay. Even if it's cancer, they're going to be okay. You know? Um, that, that would be a, a Catholic. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's just crazy. Yeah. <laughs> a little. Um, so. Yeah. So that's. Yeah. I mean, so much of everything that you're you're sharing with me, I I can so connect with it. Um. And the other thing that I really realized, and I don't know if this is just part of our Western culture is, is kind of like this attitude that you've failed if, if you die, <laughs> you know, like that's failure. Um, but along with that, you know, even in our, even in our suffering, whether it comes from our own illness or a child or our loss, it's okay. Like this is, this is where we are, and this is okay. We can still live, we can still find joy, we can still find peace, we, we are still open to God's grace in this state where we are now. And so often I think we focus on, we have to get better, it has to get better, it has to get different, it has to be different before I can be where I'm supposed to be. And what I realized is that no, you're actually supposed to be right where you are right now, and that's okay. You, know, you put the one foot in front of the other. You, you do your due diligence. You do what you need to do to find health again. But this is okay. And God is here. Maybe that's a little bit about of what you were experiencing. Um, because that's part of detachment too. Like, yeah, this is, I can be content even here. So I love yeah. to call, you know, what he says however he says it, like I can be okay in really good times and really bad times and I've learned to live it all. That's, that's my goal now. And as a mother speaking to a mother, 
Like I remember being in the place where you are now. And obviously you've experienced loss and what that grief feels like, but I'm okay. You know, like I'm on the other side of that fear of, um, of what you have in your heart and that fear that we'll, we'll stay there for a long time, yeah. but I'm on the other side of that. And that is to another reason I wanted to write the book and share our story is okay. That's, it's okay. I'm okay here. And I still feel Zach and I still love him. I love him more today than I did the day he died, you know, because love grows. And that's affirming to me and, and brings me a lot of hope because he's still here. He shows up all the time. You've experienced that with your own loved yeah. one, you know, and, and, and that's, that's our hope. You know, yeah. we know that that veil is very thin and every so often, it gets pulled away and we get to see. Oh yeah, that's right. You're still uh, and it's like a slice of heaven uh, on earth. It yeah, really it is. is. I have to tell you a quick story um, of how I got to see him a couple of years ago. I was just, I was kind of falling into that deep grief of just really missing him. Yeah. This was two summers ago and it was like mid July and I was just not feeling his presence like I had been. And so I was just talking to him and I I just, I miss you. And I just don't feel you. I would even take, today I would even take a cardinal landing in that shrub as a sign, as a hello from you, which is kind of laughable because our whole yard is full of cardinals. And a lot of people up here view that as a sign from a loved one. And I'm like, I even take that like scrappy little (laughs) sign that you're here. (laughs) Nothing happened, of course. So I was just sad. And the next morning, just still feeling as heavy and sad. And I glanced over at that shrub and I saw something moving in it. So I walked over and it was a female cardinal. And she had built a nest right in that spot. And she had two little eggs that she was nursing. And so she's sitting on her little nest. And I get to watch this whole process now because it's like right there. And her little babies hatch and watch, they hatch on my birthday, which is uh. <laughs> in August. You know, so I'm like, okay, nicely done, Zach. That was, that was very sweet. He's like, hold on, mom. I got it. You just have to be patient. <laughs> you want yeah. a cardinal? I'll give you a cardinal. That's so. with my, my sibling. It's butter, like butterflies. I love yeah. butterflies. Everybody knows I love butterflies. I've always loved them. Um, just like the spiritual significance too, you know? And so, um, shortly after my brother passed, we were at the, I was at the family lake house, um, on my husband's side. I kid you not. I've never seen a butterfly this big and it just kept fluttering around me. Like it was like dancing oh. around me. And I'm like, butterflies don't do this. They usually kind of like wait away, but literally it was just dancing right around me. It was like flirting with me. And I'm like, I know, I know you're sending this to me. Like I know it, you know? Um, so, and it was beautiful. It was such a beautiful butterfly. I've never seen one that big ever since. And I like, yeah, it was, I want to say it was like a blue, like this big, massive blue, black, um, butterfly. So it was, it wasn't, something that I've been used to seeing ever, you know? And so, yeah, you know, they, they do definitely communicate with us in, in ways. And so I'm so glad to hear that you are able to offer that encouragement that you're okay, you know, because 
there are so many parents who this year alone will find out that their child didn't make it. And I think as a, as a parent, we fear what that looks like. Will we ever be okay? Like, it's like you want to think that you're going to be okay, but there's that fear of will we ever be okay? And so thank you for providing that source of encouragement and hope for other people who are, you know, experiencing loss as well and knowing that it takes time and yeah, it's going to suck and it's going to hurt, but eventually you have more good days or okay days, you know, Mm -hmm. than the hard days. Yep. Yeah. And there, there is a huge hole in my heart and that's okay. Like I've learned to live with that and yeah. I still have joy. I still have grace in my life. I still have beauty. And I still have a hole in my heart. And that's okay. Oh. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I feel like I could sit here and talk with you forever. <laughs> I know. I, I want you to come over and sit on my patio and just have coffee and we can just sit and talk. For I know. Hour. Yeah, you're We'll come up to Minnesota one day. <laughs> that sounds good. Maybe we'll swing down to Texas like in January. <laughs> Yes, there you go. <laughs> when well, I would say you know, like you're not going to see much other than like maybe an ice, ice storm, which means like you know, an inch or two of ice, <laughs> <laughs> which still sounds horrible. I think yeah. fun. So uh, well, this was lovely. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today and just being so open and sharing your heart with me. And I am so excited. So October sixteenth is October sixteenth. It is Clouds, an original movie on uh, streaming on Disney Plus. And then the book too is available for pre-order now. Wherever you buy books, you can pre-order it. And um, that will be released on October 13th. Amazing. I'm so excited for you. And um, your family is in my prayers. And I'm just so honored to get a chance to speak with you. And I'm so glad to hear that everyone is okay. We're okay. You know, it's okay is better than not. So, well, and when you come from the childhood cancer world, okay is the goal. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. the gold standard. Like, I just want to be normal. I want to be okay. And we are. We're yeah. okay. Uh, thank you so much. And I hope you have a wonderful weekend. And I hope to talk to you soon. That will happen. You too. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye bye.